The more we rely on artificial intelligence, the more it gives us these tools to uh, revolutionize uh, human society, the less, my view is, the less likely capitalism will survive. Cool. Hey. Hey, everybody. Hi. Hi, Brian. Hey, hello. Hello. Oh, Brian, well, good to see you, man. Yeah, it has been a while. It's, these we gotta we gotta fix that. I know. Where where are you? Everybody's in someplace else now. Brett's finally back in the United States. How about that? After months, <laughs> our highly efficient reg- immigration system. Everybody's worried about AI. We got to fix a few basic things here first. Yeah, like, absolutely. Yeah. So i i did say uh, I did say to someone uh, today that I finally got my visa sorted out so I could come into the states, and they said, "Oh, what, had you tried Mastercard?" And I, 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 yeah, because it was a Visa Mastercard joke. But anyway. Oh God, sorry. Yeah, you broke up there a bit. Your connection is not not helping with the punchline. No. Yeah, it should be great, right? The connection should be stellar, being in in the heart of Silicon Valley. But yeah, um, yeah. But you know, don't can't trust the promises from Silicon Valley. I think that's going to be one of the key takeaways here. They overpromise and underdeliver. Oh my goodness. <laughs> Brett, but, Brett, where are you actually located right now? No, I'm I'm in uh, I'm at the Sheraton Palo Alto, dude. You want to you want to grab a beer later, dude? I am 15 minutes away from you. Yes, there you go. All right, well let's let's do it. <laughs> you guys could have met at a place that has better bandwidth. Ah, well, you, he said Sheraton. You know, it's it's amazing. If, if you tour if you tour Silicon Valley, this is just a, an aside. If you tour Silicon Valley, there are very little buildings that would let you know that you're actually in Silicon Valley. It still oh, yeah. very much looks place. like you're in the 1970s and 80s. It's it's not a place. It's a it's a it's kind of like a, a state of mind. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. Especially now when everybody's working from home. Uh, okay, so let's talk. The topics here today, we've got a few that you've teed up, Brett. Uh, the first one is uh, this recent executive announcement from President Biden, the White House taking the lead on regulation of AI in the United States. And of course, uh, they got that one out in the nick of time just before the EU held its, uh, sorry, the, the UK uh, held its big Bletchley Park gathering that brought 28 different countries together, including China and the EU and the US, uh, to talk about the risks of artificial intelligence. Uh, so you got kind of like Sam Bookman was there. Elon Musk was there. It was quite a crowd, actually. Quite a crowd. Yeah, all the luminaries. Um, <laughs> although there, there's an issue we need to talk about, which is that they keep allowing the same people in the room and nobody else. And there's a, a kind of a growing outcry about that. And then in the background behind all this, uh, I guess trying to get what we're, get a word in edgewise around all the kind of moral outrage and panic. You've got a couple of voices that have been very skeptical, um, including Meta. Uh, you know where where. Um, Nick Clegg, who's a former deputy prime minister of the UK, uh, he's come out and he's like, this is a moral panic. Yan LeCun, who's in charge of AI there, actually one of the leaders of AI, uh, he's also been very dismissive about these exaggerated claims in his view. Um, and Mark Andreessen uh, issuing his tech techno-optimist manifesto. Manifesto. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. We have to get into that. So we got quite a lot teed up for today's episode of The Futurists. Uh, for the folks who are joining us live, hi, I'm Rob Tursick, and look at all the people that have joined us today. My co-host, Brett King. Hi, Brett. G'day. Miss <laughs> Metaverse, Katie King. Hey, happy to be back. Good to Doing see good. you. And of course, Brian Solis. Hi, Brian. So good to see you again after a whole summer. 
Uh, yeah. <laughs> Metaverse is already in the future. She's in some smart city or something. Oh, yeah, look at that. Wow, your yeah. background is yeah. evolved. Exactly. I'm, I'm so, living so at the line. Look at <laughs> yeah, this. Not really. Yeah, that's... <laughs> <laughs> that's the work yep. background. That's the real work background. Brian's in the simulation. <laughs> uh, hi, okay, hi, Denise. Thanks for joining us. <laughs> Denise. Hi, Denise. Uh, okay, so let's uh, let's start with President Biden and this executive order. So the first thing that has to be said is why an executive order and not say legislative action from Congress? And I think we all know the answer to that one. The U.S. Congress is paralyzed by gridlock and utterly incapable of functioning. It has been missing in action for the better part of a year. It doesn't look like it's going to get any better anytime soon. So President Biden decided to fill the vacuum uh, and show some leadership. I think generally the response has been pretty positive about this. Uh, you know, there's some issues, people are quibbling about various things, but the idea that the White House has taken the lead to say, look, we need to do something here. We can't just let this roll out um, completely uncontrolled. And uh, they, they've issued some guidelines. And what's interesting to me about it is um, you know, executive orders have to be rooted in some existing law because the president can't make new law. That's Congress's job that they're not doing. And so uh, they had to point to existing law and they used the Defense Production Act, which is like a wartime act from World War II, where the government can kind of commandeer resources from private industry. And that's what they're using to put some teeth in this. So they're now, uh, they're gonna require uh, big tech companies to show the results of their internal testing. Previously, they had asked them to voluntarily agree to some guidelines about testing safety, but now they're putting a little bit of teeth into it with this Defense Production Act. Um, how does that land with y'all? Like that sounds like big government is stepping in in a not subtle way into the tech world. Uh, Brett, you're up there in Silicon Valley where they're famously averse to any kind of regulation, any kind of government interaction. What's your take? Look, I, you know, I think um, the, the advantage the executive order gives is that it does put some, um, you know, guidelines in place um, and it leads to a more a healthy debate on how the regulation should be rolled out if we need licensing for AI firms and so forth. And, you know, I think this is the trend right now is that if you look at the EU regulation, you look at China's regulation, the UK regulation that's just been released, um, you know, the governments don't know where this is going to end up, but there is enough concern in the public that we need to start putting some, um, uh, you know, some, some uh, guardrails, you know, thinking of bumpers, you know, when you go to the bowling alley, you know, yes. uh, in, in place so that, um, you know, we don't get sort of runaway uh, issues. There there are obviously some issues, particularly with this version of, regulation, which has clearly been um, heavily influenced by the tech players themselves. Yeah. And that is one of the big questions. The same, you know, as you as you pointed out, the same issue in the UK is that, um, you know, the, I think tech people need to be in the room, but you also need, um, you know, people that are willing to, to represent sort of the ethical frameworks that are required, other things that aren't necessarily just limited to the tech, the tech giants in terms of their insights. Yeah, right now they're kind of dominating the discussion. Like when you look at who attends those briefing meetings with the Senate, they, they've had a couple. Uh, Senator Schumer has held. And uh, it's always the same list of names. You know, it always it's always uh, Sam Altman, um, uh, Elon Musk, uh, probably somebody from Microsoft, sometimes Satella, not, not Nadella, not always. Uh, you know, so, so uh, it's kind of the usual cast of characters. The risk there, the concern is, um, it's a very valid concern, is uh, regulatory capture. 
And the background of that is the United States government actually isn't very good at writing regulation. We have a track record that's pretty appalling in terms of when, when the federal government tries to regulate industry, it almost always backfires. And what happens on the other side of the regulation is more industry consolidation, higher profits, less good service, higher prices. Like, like it's supposed to be the exact opposite outcome. Um, they've been able, unable to achieve that. One of the reasons uh, our government gets that criticism so much is that we invite private industry, the regulated companies, to write the rules themselves. Uh, you know, face it, if you work in Congress, if you're an elected official in Congress, whether you're in the House or Senate, most of what you're doing is raising money. You know, they spend 30 hours a week raising funds for their next election. Uh, so there, very little time is actually spent drafting legislation. We tend to outsource that to think tanks and, as I mentioned, uh, private industry. So the big risk here, the big concern that's been expressed is that we're inviting private industry to write its own rules on a space that's just barely emerging. Really, it's in its infancy. And that's exactly what Sam Altman called for when he testified to Congress, a licensing regimen similar to the Atomic Energy Commission. This is dangerous because you're saying the government's going to appoint a group of experts. Gee, where will they get the experts from? Hmm. hmm. Who will those experts be? Who's going to recommend the experts? And then those experts are going to regulate industry. But that looks a lot like is a way to build a regulatory moat around an emerging exactly. industry. Um, now that, that's and we do have the tech right now where you can actually run an LLM on your iPhone or your smartphone. So, you know, everyone could be in the AI game. And that's exactly if it. You're going to talk about, you know, free market, um, you know, for AI, then, you know, what, you know, um, I, I do think that at national infrastructure wise, if you have AI in healthcare, or you're having AI and banking, you know, I do think there probably needs to be regulation of that. But, um, you know, where's the where's the line, right? Yeah, that's exactly right. Now, look, the, uh, the the one thing you can say positive about the, um, the Biden executive order is that he's kind of talking to half of it is to industry. But the other half of his, his executive order is to agencies, the agencies under his control. And um, what he's saying is, look, you know, you've got to step up. You've got to start hiring AI experts. Uh, you got to start to manage AI within the jurisdiction that you manage. And um, and he's directed that to the Department of Commerce, Department of Homeland Security, because there are some weapons risks here that we have to recognize are real. Uh, healthcare and um, uh, Department of Energy, because there's also atomic issues uh, that are raised by by some of these artificial intelligences. So so here I think Biden's doing a good job. It's basically him getting on his bully pulpit, which is something a president can do, and saying to the people that work for him in the agencies, do your job. Do the job yeah. you're already appointed to do. We don't need new laws or new regulation to do that. Uh, get in there and start managing this. He also directed the National Institute of Standards to develop national AI standards. Uh, and I think this is quite interesting. And that includes uh, a national process or like a kind of standardized process for red teaming artificial intelligence. So this suggests that the government's gonna to start to come in and verify independently the claims that are made by the private companies. And and try to to break things, which I think is uh, yeah. probably <laughs> the most important. Yeah, get them do, to do things they're not supposed to do, which by the way is pretty easy. Like I've done that with GPT-4, where you can make it hallucinate and make it say kind of silly stuff and so on. Uh, you, can, you can hypnotize uh, the, the large language models. So I think yeah, it's actually quite good to do. Can we really trust them to put together, you know, the the kind of commission that's actually needed? I mean, let's be honest here. These guys didn't even know, you know, how Facebook worked. You know, I mean, they don't understand the, the, the foundations of social media, let alone, you know, LLMs and, 
AI and, and the implications of such. And we're just going to trust the corporations to uh, to handle that, right? So, well, that's I don't know. It's, it's, I think you're you're talking about Congress, and it is definitely true. When when they bring tech executives in, it often looks pretty bad because it's a bunch of geriatrics asking questions of guys like Mark Zuckerberg. There's a pretty big disconnect, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I think in this case, actually, people are giving the White House pretty pretty high marks for putting together a task force. And in, in the sense that they actually covered the issues, they covered the real issues. They're, what they propose is very vague. They just say there's going to be rules, there's going to be guidelines. They haven't actually specified that. Uh, but from what I gather, that's what was what was interesting though is I don't know if you saw, but in the minutia there was even rules about what data center should look like in terms of compute power and stuff like that. There was some really interesting sort of outliers there. Why they wanted to put that sort of stuff in, I, I'm not really sure. Well, no, this is the danger, Brett. This is what everyone's concerned about, right? So uh, Bill Gurley, uh, venture capitalist Bill Gurley, has been outspoken on this subject, and he keeps raising the specter. Regulation is the thin end of the wedge. They'll start with AI. And but we need regulation. The U.S. is like the only major player that didn't have any regulation in this space, right? So, we don't regulate anything. We don't have privacy regulations. We don't regulate social well, media. Look, it, it is also interesting that, what was it, a month ago where Sundar, um, Elon, Zuckerberg, Altman, they got together, as, as you were mentioning earlier, Rob, that they did welcome regulation. Uh, and in some uh, speculated as to whether or not they were welcoming regulation to protect their own moats yeah. uh, in some way, yeah. shape, or form, and not necessarily uh, the, the greater good of, of, of U.S. citizens and, and, and the rest of the world. So there are always ul ulterior uh, motives. Uh, and That's the danger of letting the big companies write the rules, right? That's the big risk here. Is the big companies come in and they say, okay, we know exactly how we want to be regulated. So what Bill Gurley said, and I think it's really worth pointing out, is he said the, the who's going to get kneecapped in the process is open source AI. Because right now, open source AI is the great alternative to AI from big tech companies. You know, everyone knows that the big tech companies are integrating uh, the most advanced language models, you know, not just their own uh, homegrown ones, but they're bringing in things like Anthropic and OpenAI and other companies uh, into the cloud offerings. So it's really a way to bolster up um, AWS and Azure and Google Cloud. And effectively, they're going to try to turn those uh, cloud offerings into, you know, kind of like a roach motel where it's easy to check in. You can learn how to use a language model and it's very difficult to check back out once you've kind of optimized your process on, say, Google's cloud or Microsoft's cloud. And that strategy is perfectly obvious. The alternative to that, though, is open source. And like you pointed out, Brian, the open source models, they're pretty good. They're advancing really quickly. There are millions of people working on them. So there's tremendous amounts of progress. And this is what Meta favors. Meta's obviously famously leaked their or allowed their, their, their llama model to leak out into the public, uh, whether or not that was intentional. It actually ends up being a big advantage for them because it means they have a huge group of developers. They probably have the largest group of developers now working on their AI. And, um, and then, by the way, Meta is the most skeptical about the need for regulation and the need for you know, any of these disaster scenario um, that people have been portraying. So you have a real split here between what big tech wants and what the open source community wants. And what B Bill Gurley has said is be very careful because it's quite likely that the regulations that are forthcoming or if there's a licensing body that come, become, uh, comes about, it's gonna forbid the open source models. And he said, if that's the beginning, that will be the beginning of the end of open source in the United States, because it will just expand its jurisdiction, it'll expand its purview, and it'll start to outlaw um, uh, open source models. I know that sounds like a doomsday scenario, but if you think about why would big tech be involved, why would big tech care so much about regulation? That's a perfectly valid reason to get into the regulation game, 
is to knock out the single biggest uh, threat and disruptive threat from open source. Mm. Yeah, you think about it, it's pretty crazy to think that, you know, AI is in many ways the equivalent of software that has already broadly impacted, you know, the world. Mm -hmm. um, you know, Rob, not all written on it. Right. Um, but, you know, you now have the most advanced form of software and we're saying only the leading tech companies can play in that game. I mean, wow. you know, the fact is the, the, the whole UL and Valley system is being built on, um, you know, these small startups being able to attract venture capital and come up with these new types of uh, business models. And if if we say only licensed providers can play a scheme, how do you get licensed? Well, you know, the rules for that are determined by the biggest tech tech giants. Then, you know, obviously that is no longer a free market you know, in, in, in this that we've, you know, we, we've always seen the U.S. as, right? Yeah, they can effectively snuff out small companies just by making the, the testing and certification process so expensive that a start, startup company can't afford to do it. So if they'll just start to use these regulations as a way to build barriers to entry. At least that's the worry that we're hearing about from Silicon Valley venture capitalists. I think it's a legitimate thing to be concerned with. The solution's pretty clear, though. Don't let big tech write the rules and don't let big tech appoint people to these advisory panels or, or regulatory bodies. Easy to say, tough to do. Historically, the U.S. has been terrible at this. Almost every industry, some 75% of industries in the United States have been concentrated, highly concentrated in the last 20 years. And those industries get the regulation they pay for. And they tend to be able to choose the regulators. Uh, basically, they use that regulatory position as kind of like a prize. Go in, be a regulator for a few years. If you do things the way we want, then you're going to get a great job on the other side. Uh, yes, yeah, so Brett, you're wondering, and it's a good question, what are the risks we should be concerned about? What are the, what are the threats that people are so worried about? Why did, the, e, why did the, the UK call this summit? Rishi Sunak, the prime minister of the well, UK. Well, I, I think one of the, the reasons um, the UK called is a lot of people are talking about the existential risk yeah. of artificial intelligence. But the bigger risk... The more the more significant risk, and Rob, you and I have made this on the show a number of mm. times, but I think the bigger risk is disruption to human capital, right? And the fact that, you know, AI can so easily replace humans in so many areas of the workforce is a much more immediate risk than sure. you know, AI is taking over the planet. You right? mean people losing their jobs to AI? Right, absolutely. Right. That's definitely a, a big risk, although I think they did talk about that in the, in the UK uh, this week. And, and Katie, you're familiar with another big risk, which is disinformation, right? So like AI-powered deepfakes is a real thing. It's not something that people are making up. And there's also the ability right. to use this uh, for hacking. You know, So they, that came up as well in the UK. They showed examples of how hackers can use artificial intelligence basically to streamline, to streamline their process. They're using it like co-pilot uh, in a way yeah. it's kind of the promise of AI. <laughs> Right, so right, right. Tell, and, tell and us about the impact too. on social media because that's a probably that's probably one that hasn't come up as much, but it's a big, it's a real present risk. Ah, well, do we remember the Tay AI that got released on uh, Twitter? <laughs> yeah, it did not racist. go well. <laughs> <laughs> it did not go well. Um, so, I mean, yeah, we're going to be seeing more of this stuff. I mean, it, it's going to be happening. Uh, you know, with every advancement, there's going to be people who use it for uh, for for bad means, right? Um, but yeah, I mean, hopefully, uh, 
I think that the AI regulation is intended on capping some of that. And also, too, I mean, ChatGBT, there's a lot of people that are already mm, frustrated with the services of ChatGBT because they feel that they're not receiving the same results that they had initially in earlier versions. That's true. They kind of neutered it. Like it doesn't do the outrageous stuff anymore. Yeah. You know, and now you have people going over to Claude, you know, Claude versus ChatGBT because they say, oh, well, this is the other one. This one's going to give me what I want. Right. So people are going to be choosing different brands uh, of AI based on what information they're looking for, what results they receive. And I think we'll be seeing more competition in that space uh, very soon. It's already happening now. Yeah, I think you're right. So, so circling back to what Brett talked about, the job displacement uh, challenge or the, the fear of it. Uh, does anybody know anyone who's lost their job to an AI yet? I know we keep hearing about this, right? There's this theory that <laughs> some free Ask Microsoft. Um, I, well, I do know one area um, which, uh, you know, um, is in our, our industry as speakers, um, which is I know translators that have lost their job to AI, particularly in China. Um, you know, so because built-time translation in China, you know, the tech is very good now to translate from English, Chinese, Chinese to English in particular. Oh, so like real-time translation, the thing in your ear. Yeah. That's, oh, that's okay. Okay. That's a very yeah. good illustration of it. Those are good jobs too. Those are not small jobs. Uh, you know, because the one thing I've noticed about these, uh, the generative AI systems is, is they still kind of require a human being, even Copilot. It's great. Everybody I know who writes software is using it. Apparently some 60% of coders are using Copilot in some way or another. But if you ask any of them, they'll say, well, yeah, it makes mistakes. I'm a good enough coder. I can spot the error and I can fix the error. But to me, that's like, okay, the promise of AI is not complete. Well, you know, I, I, I would say, um, you know, one of the really interesting things right now is the UAW um, strike, you know. Um, I think the UAW, the United Auto Workers uh, strike in the US, I think that is about AI. I think they're, they're, they're thinking that, um, you know, they're like the success that Tesla's had um, with their automation at the factory level. And I think these factory workers are really concerned about that. I, I think there's uh, you know fairly broad concern about it. Well, you I mean, know, if they, I can if I could share just a quick a quick bit of this. There was a really interesting uh, Wall Street Journal Tech Live event that was in Southern California a couple of weeks ago. And Vinod Kosla had shared that he 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 believed that within 10 to 20 years, AI would be able to perform 80% of 80% of the jobs. Uh, and that's phenomenal. If you look at, if you compare that with also Accenture research that recently came out that showed that the workforce, uh, to, the, to the point of this comment that we just received, that mm-hmm. in every major revolution, there's, there is a great reinvention of human capital. But right now, there's a great resistance from the workforce that Accenture's data found to embrace AI for probably all of the reasons that we see in sensationalized media. Add to that the lack of leadership, the lack of standards, the lack of regulation from officials, from business leaders. Uh, You you don't have the top-down push necessary. And lastly, you add to that the lack of sweeping education reform to prepare the next generation workforce for essentially what's going to be a completely new era of work, of Mm. which 
isn't design, isn't isn't set yet, right? This is all going to start playing out now. We we are witnessing a time where there is already this level of conversation. This there's this level. This is an executive order. When AI is the dumbest it will ever be. Yes, and it will only augment and accelerate now exponentially from this point forward, to which we're already behind. And the problem is government doesn't work proactively. Government can only regulate retroactively, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. It can only respond. It can't make rules about stuff that hasn't happened yet. I mean, they can try. That's but the usually- problems with the whole regulatory supervisory model today is that regulators have to be responsive to what's happening. They can't, you know, regulators aren't innovators, you know? Right. They sure aren't. Uh, you know, I was in the uh, I was in Jordan this week, uh, and I had the opportunity to speak to some government ministers while I was there. And I said, look, this is the time right now to set up a training center for future managers. Uh, you can't wait five years because it'll be too late by then. And they're going to need more than software developers. Every, every focus is on software developers. And that's true. Like AI coders are currently in demand, although who knows how long that's going to last if the AI can write its own software and improve itself. Um, but you need managers who understand how to use artificial intelligence. And I'd say managers who also understand how to use, how to deal with virtual worlds and digital twins, immersive media, all the new things that are emerging. Uh, it's almost like an emerging technology track for an MBA. That would be a useful thing for some country to take the lead on because I think they'd be gener- uh, building the next generation of business leaders. But let's address the substance of the question. So someone on LinkedIn whose name didn't pop up, but there was a good question. They said, you don't need to be worried about um, yeah, the risk to human capital or the displacement of human workers. There'll be plenty of jobs. Um, well, this is this is the argument. Right? Traditionally, all of these new tech produce all of these jobs. But the thing that's different with AI, and this is at the heart of the debate we've had on this before, is we've never had a technology that can simultaneously disrupt every industry at the same time. You know, you look at things like the internet, it was mainly retail and e-commerce. You know, you look at computing, it started in sort of, you know, um, you know, for, for office functions and things like that. But it wasn't it wasn't simultaneously affecting the service industry, the manufacturing sector, all of these things at the same time. Electricity did, but it did in a good way, right? It sort of it made it sort of was a superpower for manufacturing and, and retail. Uh, okay, so Jim Van Over is the LinkedIn person who who posted the question. And what he wants us to talk about is how will AI be mishandled or misused by terrorists and dictators? <laughs> That's a great question. <laughs> you know, really weaponizing AI, but quite deliberately. Um, and, you know, one way that's already happening is uh, yeah. if yeah. people are, are creating deep fakes and they're weaponizing them to disrupt elections. This is not new. This has been going on since 2015. Although it's oh. quite clear AI can do a better job of it. Rob, one of, one of the interesting things that came out of... Uh, of uh, Biden's move was uh, the idea of watermarking uh, and suggested the watermarking as a way to sort of deter what what is uh, what is a deep fake and what and what is real. But everybody's going to find it. We're not even talking about AI. Let's talk about social media for a second. Look how much that disrupted the world. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. And it's only going to be uh, in, incredibly more paramount as, as creative uh, bad actors uh, figure this stuff out. So the defense mechanisms, uh, let alone uh, the, the, the offense necessary to do anything about this, is, is in, we're incredibly vulnerable. And I do want to say just one thing. I, I read this powerful quote, Rob, just even the United States, not even the rest of the world. Uh, it was from Anu Bradford, the, a law professor at Columbia University. Uh, and she said that Congress is so deeply 
polarized and even dysfunctional to the extent that it is very unlikely to produce any meaningful AI legislation in the near future. So as a voter, I think voters unite. We're going to have to stop this BS between, you know, the right and the left and understand that right now what we actually we sit at probably one of the most profound moments in history where computers can literally outsmart us in real time. And most of us in America and around the world don't even know how to prompt generative AI. Yeah. And our kids aren't learning about it. This is, this is like, this is an incredibly important point. China is producing eight STEM graduates for every one that the U.S. produces today. The only way the U.S. can compete on AI is to make broad artificial intelligence education freely available of societies. That's my view. But, Brett, but, we've got some of the world's best influencers coming out of America. <laughs> Oh yeah, <laughs> we sure do. It's great. This taste, yes. You know, Brian. Uh, I think we were saying really seriously. I, I've um, I've organized an event next week in Santa Fe where I'm gathering a bunch of people who are thinkers, uh, who people who think about community online, but also real communities, people from um, civic communities and also Native American communities, as well as people from the technology industry. And the reason I'm convening this group together is to answer the question, how can AI help us build resilient communities? Mm. I bring that up because right now, the way AI is framed is it's useful for individuals. We all get that. You can use ChatGPT to generate an email or generate a paper quickly. Uh, or it's going to be beneficial for corporations, right? That's, uh, and, and that's, an, that's, you know, that's obviously the big push for AI in the cloud. Um, but what we don't talk too much about is what's between corporations and individual people is communities. In fact, people exist in communities. Individuals don't exist without a community unless you're some kind of hermit. And so uh, this is a question that frankly hasn't been answered. So it's, a, it's white space. No one seems to understand how AI can serve us in a beneficial way. And I'd add to that. The reason I decided to organize the event is that what I perceive as I travel around the U.S. is People are being conditioned to fear AI because they're hearing so much about the threat. They're hearing people testify in front of Congress and so on. We're being conditioned to fear it as this omnipotent force that's going to determine our future and we're going to be subject to it and so forth. And actually, the tech Whoa. promoting that. Yeah, they really are. They're promoting that mm -hmm. uh, because it, it certainly adds to the myth that Silicon Valley is all powerful, right? Um, I want to get people past that fear. And the reason I organized the event is I want to get people to, to sort of lean in to AI and discover and explore the possibilities. Um, we don't know the answers yet, but hopefully next week I'll have some answers for you. I'll certainly share that with you. I think we're going to need to start to do more of that. And I guess the point there is people have agency here. Individual people can self-organize. Communities can self-organize. Mm -hmm. We don't have to be the playthings of social media. Uh, or sorry, the big media or the big technology companies, the, the um, individual groups can actually start to take a, a lead on this. I think they need to. Otherwise, they're going to be in receiving and asking Congress to figure out how to do it for American people is not going to work. Okay. But that leads me to another point, Brett. One of the things that people have said very critically of the meetings in uh, at Congress, also the White House meetings and um, the meeting that just happened, the uh, SUNY Rishak's meeting in um, in the in the U.K., um, 
uh, sorry, Rishi Sunak, I got his name mixed up, uh, is that they're leaving out all the critical voices who's not being heard, who's not attending these meetings are people who talk about social justice, who talk about the way AI can be used today to discriminate, how bias can be baked into the training data and end up with a biased or even a prejudiced AI and the outcome. Uh, these groups have been raising these concerns stridently but they've been left outside of the door. In other words, it's a very real concern that when these regulations get baked, they won't even have consulted with the groups that are most concerned about, about the way this technology might disadvantage people. Let's talk about that some too, because I think the voices outside the door need to be heard. We do, good, and you know, we can bring in the Andreessen stuff into this conversation mm -hmm. as well. But, yes. Um, yeah, yeah. Well, he calls uh, them you know, people villains, right? He calls them the enemy, the voices of reason. It's just insane. I mean, it's but almost I James, James Bond villain right there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yep. yeah, absolutely. Uh, he's got the got the hairstyle um, to go with it, but although, the bullet head. Yeah, yeah. Um, but <laughs> I would say, um, you know, he looks like a cone head. Yeah, yeah. Well, oh wait, uh, I know that's a sensitive I, subject, Brett. Sorry. Oops. Right. Oops. <laughs> I'm, or, not bold, or, I'm, I'm not old. I'm not old enough to my hair. Um. <laughs> No, I will say, well, Brian, before uh, before you jump in, you know, I will say one of the things that's really going to become clear, and this comes back to Brian's comment earlier, is that we're going to have two types of people in the workforce over the next 10 years. Those that are incorporating artificial intelligence into their career, into their corporations, and those that are um, in danger of being displaced by, by the technology. I mean, it, it, I think it's that binary. Mm. Uh, I was I was presenting last evening uh, in Menlo Park uh, to a, a delegate or a delegation uh, from uh, Innovation Center Denmark, and this is the exact point that we brought up, which is you know we we stand at sort of the intersection of uh, of our past experience in education and opportunity. Uh, and that opportunity is something that can be self you know self defined. Uh, you know what is what is. The role you want to play in the future of society in a role where uh, I, I could just share some really quick stats that one fourth of the current work tasks uh, could be automated uh, in the US and Europe uh, by 2030. Uh, and mm. it, it spans everything office, office, yep. uh, and admin support, legal, uh, architecture, engineering, uh, sciences, uh, which is which is incredible, business and financial operations. And so to your point, Brett, if it's binary, uh, so we have an opportunity, you know, so, so as leaders, you know, people don't know what they don't know, right? They've spent their entire life learning a certain way in a linear way. And now it's all right. just sort of changed. Uh, here's, here's an exponential platform for you to sort of augment everything that you've learned and everything that you can do and everything you couldn't do now yesterday that you can now do today. And that's overwhelming for any human being. If you think about just how difficult change itself is right now, here's a superpower. What are you going to do with it? Uh, we've all as human beings dreamed of having a superpower. Well, here it is. And so now, now that it's overwhelming, people don't necessarily know what to do. Right. And, and we could, we could, lock ourselves in paralysis so that then brett in in that in that binary equation then says well who's going to say what i need to do who's going to inspire me who's going to motivate me who's going to teach me who's going to mentor me or coach me uh into what i need to do next and this is that opportunity for i think if we're going to have techno optimists uh then we need uh human optimists in order to be able to sort of champion what we do right. next right uh, that starts with us. I, I posted something. I was just so inspired the other day. I posted something on Instagram that said, but what can I do? I'm just one person, said 8 billion people. This is that right. moment 
now where we have to individually and collectively take control of our own future destiny because we saw what happened with social media. 42 states are suing Meta for the addictive nature of social media. Uh, so right. are we going to wait for that to happen with AI? I hope not. Probably. Right. What, steps, what steps do you think people should be taking right now? Because, you know, I, I've noticed in my social circles, both online and in the real world, because uh, I'm here in Hollywood, right? So like half the people I know are in the movie, movie business and they're literally against AI. Like they're, it's like, it's evil. I don't want to touch it. I'm not kidding. Like they've said that to me. It's evil and I don't want to learn about it. And I'd sit down and show ChatGPT and MidJourney. I'm like, actually, these are kind of benign. You can do a lot of cool stuff. And after a half hour, people start to get in. They're like, oh, this is actually pretty cool. And then they're curious. The other people I know, though, are people who lean in and they say, OK, this is new. And I see what I see all the trends that Brian's just talking about in the future. If I don't get on top of this thing, I'm going to be underneath it. So they're trying to learn and they're testing and they're posting and sharing. And there's you know online communities that are very supportive of teaching people how to how to use these skills. You know, I guess you can tell from my comment, you can see which, which direction I'm leaning in. Uh, I, th I think you need to I need I think you need to master these skills. But candidly, a lot of people in the United States and probably all over the world, they're not going to do that. They're not going to spend their nights and weekends teaching themselves how to do AI, how to use it. So what is the solution? Is this something an HR department should be teaching people to do? Is it some kind of adult training? Should the government get involved? Should this be part of the regulation? I, I think from this point forward, um, you know, we all, all are going to have to be lifelong learners. I think it's going to be about adaptability. Uh, you know, mm -hmm. think think this change is being up, not going down, and that requires us to be highly adaptive. Our kids are not going to have a job for life. You know, that's that's not going to be the way things work. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, I. I Talent Sorry, agencies and lawyers are already getting involved with all this. I mean, uh, I mean, how many people watched the Jonah's Awful episode of Black Mirror, right? Now everyone's all freaked out because they think that their image is going to be taken after uh, signing some contract or some term, you know, something they didn't notice. And all of a sudden, there's a whole series being based off of uh, somebody else's life, but using their image. And, mm -hmm. uh, you know, it's already happening now. Uh, you know, there's so many ads that come out these days with, uh, you know, different celebrity appearances and it, they, it may seem real. I mean, uh, Scarlett Johansson was just in the news because yeah. there was, uh, some, some ad that was using her likeness and without you know, permission. They send in the lawyers, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Permission. you know, but she's right to do it. Right. Because that's an implied endorsement and they didn't get her permission and they pay her to do it. So right. they, they should get sued. I mean, that, that's, you don't need new laws for that. That's, you know, you, uh, Elon Musk selling Bitcoin like that every, you know, like all day, every day on Twitter, but it, you know, it's all, it's all <laughs> fake. <laughs> uh, Elon, Elon though, you know, uh, I, we talked about this yesterday at the uh, innovation center Denmark event, Someone asked, you know, could AI be used for good? Uh, and the answer is absolutely. But, uh, yeah. you know, I said it's just not profitable enough right now. Uh, look at look at the uh, we will go nameless, but he just happened to acquire a big social platform uh, and is wondering why uh, why the advertisers are fleeing the network or the platform. And yet he's the number one troll on the platform, yeah. pushing yeah. advertisers yeah. away. It's sort of uh, sad. It's like we're watching the world's richest guy have a kind of middle aged crisis. Well, he, he said on he said on Joe Rogan the other day. Uh, that's all you have to say. <laughs> yeah, yeah, true. <laughs> he, he made the comment um, on on Rogan that it, you know it's quite shocking how politicized Twitter had become previously because you know um, that um, d Democrat. 
uh, led news items were, you know, eight or nine times more likely to be featured on on X than Republican news items because Republican news items were were um, you know punished for well, being um, you know fake news and disinformation. Yeah. But that yeah. is the ratio that the news organisations apply to those two sets of communities in terms of disinformation. Republican led disinformation is like seven or eight times the so I, I mean that's what the that's what the data shows. So yeah, it's I, because what they're reading and talking about is make believe. I mean, we have one political right. party that's rooted in fiction, and they they yeah, have yeah. fantasy. You know, they're they're chasing these fantasy issues instead of dealing with real issues. Um, okay, so let's talk about this. Uh, we talk about Mark, we can talk a little bit more about Elon Musk. We got to get to Mark Andreessen before we run out of time. Yeah, let's, yeah. let's get into Andreessen. Let's yeah, get yeah. into that. My own view on Elon Musk is the guy's kind of conflicted, right? Because he 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 is the most the loudest voice about the danger, the existential threat of AI, right? He, he's been banging that drum for years. Uh, he's a big Nick Bostrom fan. He's a big supporter of Max Tegmark. These are all the people involved in Future of Life Institute that wrote that pause letter. Um, but there's something weird about Elon Musk because. Remember, he's the CEO of Tesla, which is one of the most advanced AI companies in the world in terms of like real world deployment. And Tesla vehicles, when it comes to like automated or autonomous vehicles uh, killing humans, well, they take the cake. Like they are the number one killer of humans. And when you talk about killer robots, so maybe the guy is a little bit conflicted in his own feeling about AI because uh, he sees what his work is doing, but he can't say it that way. So he wants to point the finger at somebody else. Okay, Mark Andreessen, the techno optimist uh, manifesto. What kind of middle-aged man writes a manifesto? Like, doesn't the guy have better things? Uh, I've, I've written my fair share. I'm sorry. Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> but as an optimist, uh, they were always meant to um, inspire and rally people to bring about the change that we're always waiting for. But the biggest problem I have, I've been sort of trying to, you know, uh, think about why this is, is, um, you know, Andreessen basically said, you know, he talks about the fact that the 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 people in Silicon Valley, the players, because they have access to all of the best technology, are the best people to be in charge of the way that technology should be implemented and the way it should influence society. That's one of his arguments in the manifesto. But, um, you know, so and, and then... Anyway, hmm, no. Right. <laughs> but, but um, you know, uh, and he's saying all of the greatest innovations that we've seen have all come through, uh, you know, the use of technology that humans... Of technology. And while that's true, um, you know, we do have some disparity. We we had technology like solar, solar energy, hydro energy, nuclear, and so forth that could have made us you know, uh, green energy uh, capable by the year 2000. If we'd committed to that in the 60s and 70s, we could have been completely off fossil fuels um, by the year we wouldn't have climate change uh, risk like we do today. Why didn't we? It wasn't the technology. It was policy. And so when you look at the problem of the misuse of technology, that is not a tech, you know, the, the technology architects uh, aren't necessarily, you know, driving that. It, it, a lot of it is policy-based. And, and that's where we have our big problem. The problem of disparity in the world based on technology as infrastructure, you know, it, you know, and the inequality that comes from that, um, we haven't solved that. You know, the U.S. is getting more unequal 
Mark isn't even talking about that stuff in his manifesto. He, right, it, that's the problem, it, right? It's basically just a triumphalist screed of the Silicon Valley group. Don't call it the techno-optimist manifesto. Call it the tech-billionaire manifesto because that's really what it's about. It's like, we know better than you do. Shut the f*** up. We're going forward. The worst part about it, the worst part about that Mark Andreessen uh, techno-optimist screed, in my view, is that he villainizes anyone who disagrees with him. This is like right. the worst form of rhetorical debate. Instead of like honoring the other person's viewpoint and then you know deconstructing it or dismantling the uh, the arguments against, he dismisses them entirely and says no. You're the enemy. He labels them as enemies. And the enemies here are people who promote ethics, ESG, environmental guidelines. Like, really? Those are your enemies? Not only that, he doesn't stop there. He calls them killers. He does read the thing. He actually goes out and says, if you don't, if you don't support AI right now the way I suggest you support it, then you are a killer. You're responsible for future deaths that are going to happen because we didn't deploy AI in healthcare. That's what Mark Andreessen is saying. Honestly, folks, this is not a very persuasive argument if you disagree with the guy. Obviously, if you agree with them, if you're a libertarian billionaire in Silicon Valley that just wants completely untrammeled access to new technology and you want everyone to be adopting it, of course you love this manifesto. To me, it's like a warm <laughs> Rob, if I could just build on that, right? Like some of the other killers and enemies were things like tech ethics, yeah. trust and safety, social yeah. responsibility. I mean, I mean these the are of that is if you look at Andreessen Horowitz's website, they have their own tech ethics posted there. So like, well, okay, which way you want to have it, Mark? You can't have it both ways. Are you for this stuff or against it? And if you're against it, then you're a gigantic fat hypocrite, in my opinion. Well, we, you, you and I talked about this recently, Rob, that it's really, it's really just meant to be a top of the funnel piece to bring together all of the leading edge entrepreneurs and founders through his company yeah. for investment consideration. Uh, and if you buy into this, then you you're, you demonstrate ambition to change the world, just like he wrote actually in a quite meaningful piece many years ago that software is eating the world. Uh, but this takes it to an, an entirely new James Bond level. Yeah, I, I agree with that. It's a, uh, it's, it's a big change from the Mark Andreessen of the past. You know, in the past, he was an optimist and he was actually quite a thoughtful guy. I thought he was quite an intelligent guy. Now he's kind of bombastic and arrogant, and it's not a good look. Honestly, uh, I found it a little difficult to read. Uh, to me, it just seemed to me like, um, well, the New York Times called it refrigerator magnet poetry. And, and to me, it was like he took a bunch of right wing uh, sort of bullet points, if you will, you know, kind of like free market bullet points, almost like bumper stickers and stuck them together. As you get toward the end of the thing, you're like, dude, get an editor. You're a billionaire. You could hire someone actually yeah. come and scrub this. It doesn't really have coherency. It doesn't seem to hang together, particularly the latter half of that. Document. But I think this is this is a broad problem we see with all of these billionaires. You know, and look at look at Bezos. Look at Musk. You yeah. know, um, there's, you know, there's look, think, think ethics and morals. Escape do a fairly good job at sort of navigating broader social issues and so forth, but he wants, that is his legacy, you know, he wants to be um, the the Andrew Carnegie of our, uh, our generation. If many of these tech you know, Zuckerberg and so forth included, increasingly the position, Peter Thiel, you know, the positions they're putting forward, uh, you know, are disconnected from the larger social issues. You know, Musk mm -hmm talks about the fact that, you know, for example, you know, two big items that Musk talks about right now. One is um, population decrease, the lack of birth rate, um, you know, because the U.S. has fallen below the uh, sustainable birth rate now. And also, you know, he's, he's very critical of what's happening at the southern border and the immigration. Well, choose one. 
you know, but you can't, you know, you can't, you can't, you know, if you want population to stimulate economy, then if you don't have that happening, how do you make that happen? Well, you can't incentivize people to have kids unless you bring, you know, those kids are being brought into an economic environment where you're able to care for children. So the problems of equality that are, you know, in some ways determined by, um, you know, the the innovation that's occurred in the market and the changes to wage uh, growth and so forth that have gone on towards the tech industry, the biggest companies in the world today, um, you know, are tech companies generally, apart from Saudi Aramco. You know, so it skews all of the sort of wage tech base, but the people that, that you know would typically be having kids in the the middle class and the uh, the the LMI segment, they now are saying we can't afford to have kids. If you're not going to have kids, immigration, right? To 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 spur on growth. So, like, and it's happening in every country in the northern hemisphere. That right, absolutely. Because families can't afford to have kids, it's expensive. Absolutely, population uh, collapse. You mentioned something. And then- They talk about abundance and innovation. That's the thing with these guys. It's always abundance and innovation. We're just going to innovate everything and it's going to be great. But is it going to be great and for who? Right. I mean, and and the abundance, the abundance. I mean, what does abundance even mean? You know, he tries to break this down and make it sound like it's it means something. Uh, This is some call to action to, you know, bring people together and believe in the future again. But is that really what this is about? I mean, at the end of the day, it's it's a lot of these people, their own companies that are actually holding back some of this progress, uh, you know, so I don't know. It just seems very um, hypocritical in, in a lot of ways. And, uh, you know, I, 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 I'm all for abundance. Yeah, I, I always describe myself as a techno optimist, but uh, I think we need to be realistic about this at, at the same time. I think that yeah. term's been tarnished now. Uh, there's a question yeah. from Denise, Denise Holt asks, which manifesto? We're referring to the one that's posted on the Andreessen Horowitz website, and it's called the Techno Optimist Manifesto. It got a lot of news, a lot, a lot of play in the press, particularly in the Wall Street Journal last week. It just came out. Um, October 16th. Brett, you raised something that I think is important to come back to. I want to underscore. You brought up Andrew Carnegie, and it's certainly true that the time we are in today is starting to resemble the Gilded Age of the late 1800s, where you had unprecedented wealth in the hands of a very few num- very few people, and also money trusts, which is a whole separate subject that we can get into, uh, but that's also happening now as well in the United States, where a handful of companies have controlling interests in businesses. So it's starting to look like uh, another version of the Gilded Age. And as you recall, if you know your U.S. history, 1875 to 1890 was a pretty rough time for the average working person. Things got worse before they got better. But by the late 1800s, at the turn of the century, the so-called captains of industry, or the robber barons, as they were also known, they started to have a change of heart. And it was led by Andrew Carnegie, who wrote The Gospel of Wealth. And it was the first thing I thought of when I read Mark Andreessen's uh, screed. Because candidly, if you compare the two, you see how far we've fallen and how little imagination today's Silicon Valley entrepreneurs have. What Andrew Carnegie wrote about in the Gospel of Wealth is why billionaires should give their wealth away during their lifetime. And he said it's an absolute moral responsibility. That he said it was absolutely wrong to hand it to your family and create a kind of royalty. And he pointed to Europe at the time and said, this is what will happen. You'll have a culture like that. Um, you know, here in the U.S., we've got income inequality, but we have wealth inequality is a much bigger problem. It's less publicized. This accumulation of wealth is bad, and the accumulation of wealth by the 1% of the 1% is the scariest thing of all. And in many respects, what we're seeing in this techno-optimist manifesto is uh, 
is a is kind of a, a validation, if you will, or a justification of the right. accumulation of great wealth. They're basically saying, hands off, we want we know what you're doing, what we're doing here. You guys don't stay down in the engine room. We're going full steam ahead here. We know where we're driving this bus. To me, that's a little dismaying. I would rather see some real leadership from Silicon Valley that's about giving away wealth, empowering people. You know, the two people that you see doing this are Laureen Jobs, Steve Jobs' widow, and, and Jeff Bezos' ex-wife, who intends to give yeah. all of her billions and has done a remarkable job. So maybe we need to let the women take the lead here because they certainly <laughs> don't Amen. You know, there's, um, there is actually, I don't know if you uh, ever watched Christopher Hitchens, but, you know, Chris Hitchens said, you want to create economic growth and economic wealth, you you give money to women. And if you look at um, you know, uh, Green Bank out of Bangladesh and so forth, you know, we, we've seen that time and time again, that the more the more you empower women in the economy, the, the more uh, the more it affects, um, you know, broader, broader um, sustainability. Not sustainability, but equity. But, um, you know, one of the really interesting things is we have got this sort of runaway inequality, wealth inequality happening in the United States right now. It's also happening in the UK, happening in places like Australia. Europe generally is faring a little better. And part of the argument here is that um, the US has, yes, a free market, but it has a free market society, whereas Europe has a democratic society. And so what happens in the U.S. is we don't really have democracy. You've pointed to this, Rob, that Citizens United and the way lobbying groups affect policymaking in the United States is that's that's how society's rules are determined in the United States now. It's not we the people. It's we the corporations. You know, we the money. We the corpos. Actually, there's a book by that title, We the Corporations, that is so worth reading. It's a history of how corporations in the United States got the same rights as citizens. And, and, and it leads up to, of course, Citizens United. Uh, here's uh, Denise Holt saying the idea of abundance that's being ushered in through this next wave of tech comes from the projections that we'll be going from last year's global GDP of 90 trillion to a projected global GDP of 900 trillion, big number, a hundredfold, a tenfold increase by 2025. And it'll be largely in the growth of the data sector. Okay, so there's there's the foundation for the optimistic viewpoint that this is going to lead to unprecedented growth. Uh, sorry, I have a little trouble swallowing. But the, but the problem the problem is still wealth distribution. Yeah. Right. If you have guys like Andreessen, you know, holding the purse. Billionaires, not billionaires. Yeah. Well, who's going to be the first tech trillionaire? It's a race between Bezos and Musk right now, you know, but it could be, you know, Sam Altman might think he's got a shot at it. Um, You know, but. um, why does society tolerate trillionaires or billionaires? Why do we try? Well, this is, you know, in in, uh, in the last book that, you know, Richard Petty and I did, The Rise of Techno-Socialism, we actually, we actually um, proposed that it should be a cap. And we, we're not sure what the cap should be. Should it be $200 billion? Um, You know, should it be $300 billion? But there is a logical cap in terms mm-hmm. of, because that sort of wealth cash means very inefficient resource allocation. You but, know, particularly Brett, Brett, in terms of the broader economy. I'm with you on the resource allocation. There's something you look at Congress, right? Being as divided as it is, it's it's it is a money issue, right? They can fundraise off of this dis- division, uh, and the yeah. the thing, the rest of the world is 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 not dissimilar. I mean, corruption has been a, and greed have have been part of the the root problems for a lot of societies, ills, going back as far back as you want to look. But if if in reality we try to put a cap on it, the very people who would fight it are the people who. 
who benefit from it. One of one of Mark Andreessen's enemies in his list were those who who support stakeholder capitalism. Mm. I want you to think about yeah. that. Yeah, Essentially, yeah, yeah. yeah, he's 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 the enemy, Brett, to what you're proposing, uh, and yet he's going he stands to benefit from this firsthand uh especially with his manifesto a, a, operating as sort of a lead generation device actually it, it's what's interesting jamie Dimon has said exactly the opposite yeah we need more stakeholder capitalism which i admire because you know yeah. you're right that's not like a cool thing for a ceo to say anymore it's it's no longer cool esg is no longer cool or admirable it's it's just you, you get you get villainized if you bring it up um, but we're going to need to do something because the alternative to that, if the split gets too far, is an awful lot of dispossessed people. And we know if you have a lot of unemployed people who aren't making any money, you're going to have social problems. You might say we're already on the brink of that here. Maybe this wave of populism, not just in the U.S., but in Europe and other countries as well, is a reflection of the growing inequality. It's a way of people express themselves, not too articulate, maybe not too successful as a political policy or a political movement. But it's kind of an angry cry of people saying, hey, my future has been stolen from me and I can't seem to build wealth and I can't afford to have a family and I can't afford to, to educate them. Uh, those are the priorities that, frankly, are going to keep society stable. I'm not quite sure that the techno-optimist manifesto is going to satisfy any of those requirements or meet any of those needs. Mark views that just if you got tech run, it's going to be it's going to generate great abundance and somehow that abundance will magically filter down to the rest of society. Uh, you know, we do enjoy these technologies and they do give us superpowers. I don't disagree with them on the fundamental point. I just don't think the redistribution of that wealth has happened or is, is likely to happen. Well, we, so. we, we saw well, that if it is redistributed. What about we put it towards merit, you know, a merit based society and all that? I mean, it shouldn't matter if it's just a female who's leading or blah, 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 the labels. I mean, let's just try to if we're going to do these changes, we should try to put it back into society in a way that fundamentally helps rebuild uh, people's drive to become better and, and contribute to society. We don't have that right now. <laughs> you know, it's kind of broken. I, I think we oh, can do better. You know, it shouldn't matter what we are. You're so right, Katie. One of the things I'm reminded of is that the, the jobs today that we value the least are the ones that require the most human touch. They're the least likely to be automated. And I'm thinking of caregiver for elderly, a teacher for children, someone who takes care of you in the hospital. These are jobs that are not particularly well paid. Now, they are jobs yeah. that probably Rest, are going to be hard Restaurant experience stuff, exactly. you know, like uh, theater, um, t uh, tourism. Yeah. So like high touch, human touch uh, and high contact human touch. These are jobs we don't pay very, that don't pay very well today. I wonder if that's going to change in the future or if it's going to get worse. Because candidly, these are the last jobs that are going to get automated. They require a human in the loop. Um, so we'll certainly see what happens with the trend line there, unfortunately. It's pretty grim. Gosh, Brett, how do we make this optimistic? We've been bashing on Mark Andreessen, which has been a pure pleasure for a little while. Well, I, you know, I, I will say this. Um, let me sort of finish with this, is that some of the greatest challenges we face as a species, um, fixing the problem of climate change, um, curing diseases, you know, healthcare, uh, you know, efficiency in general, understanding the mysteries of the universe, um, you know, and uh, finding much more efficient ways to, um, you know, um, to use resources, to be more sustainable as a society. These are things that AI will definitely help us with. But 
but where, where AI is in conflict with the existing system is the more we rely on artificial intelligence, the more it gives us these tools to uh, revolutionize uh, human society, the less, in my view is, the less likely capitalism will survive because wow. it's a different value system. Wow. Right on. Well, where I was leading to is maybe the <laughs> field we should focus AI on is, is governance, uh, because we certainly yes. have such a great job of it. That's a place we can oh, have. Yeah. Well, you know, you, I think, you know, you could get better governance as well, you know, like, and one of the really interesting effects of AI, well, couldn't, couldn't be worse than what we've got now, right? But <laughs> exactly. one of the really interesting elements of AI is you've seen that um, regulation from, for AI is becoming a global thing. And I think that's one of the things that AI is actually going to help us do is sort of bring uh, bring standards for, for regulation globally. Hmm. Well, you know, uh, on, on that, on that, I, 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 I'd, I'd just like to just ask, what would a young Mark Andreessen do? You know, I, I just, I just believe that you don't, you don't believe you don't become a, a, the opposite of an optimist, but billions have a way of doing that to you uh, and maybe what yeah. we need are some young mark Andreessen's right now that's the danger of the ai regulations that if they come down in a way where they protect big big tech they put a moat around the current leaders and make it difficult for startup companies then there won't be future mark Andreessen's. that's a real risk i mean this is the concern that we've heard articulated by silicon valley vcs i think it's a legitimate concern because when you have big companies encouraging the government to write rules what they're typically seeking to do is prevent disruption from below. Uh, so let's try to make sure that that stays open. And, and, and the best way to do that, in my view, is to make sure that the open source models are still viable, that those are not carved out or somehow uh, banned or regulated beyond use. So we, we have run out of time. Um, oh. but, and, but, and we could continue obviously, but I know I has to go, I've got to go as well, but, um, um, I think, uh, let's, let's continue this conversation online in the community and see, uh, see what everyone thinks. But, um, you know, I guess if you want to continue to follow this conversation, make sure to check out the podcast, the futurists. Um, number one futurist podcast in the world today. All of us are hosting there regularly, so join us there. And, uh, you know, we should finish with that tagline, guys. Yeah, well, then <laughs> we have a new host. We have a new, a new futurist on the show every week, every Friday. Uh, we interview one person in depth about how they're influencing the future. And so until next Friday, I guess we will see you in, in the, in the, the future. future. <laughs> <laughs> that is so lame. We get it wrong every time. I know, but that's the app. That's the I want to give a big shout out to Kevin Hershar and Elizabeth who uh, organize and produce our show for us. And um, and thanks, Jim Vanover and Denise Holt for joining in and giving us questions. Yeah, we love yeah, that. Live interaction with the audience, always a fun thing to do. Thank you, Katie. And thank you to Brian Solis for joining the show from wherever you are. And Brad, of course, is always a great pleasure to see you. And I'm very happy and gratified you finally got back into the United States. I know. Thank yes, you. welcome back. Thank you, U.S. Customs and Border Patrol. <laughs> All right. <laughs> All right, everyone. We'll see Thanks, you next guys. week. Bye now. See ya. Well, that's it for The Futurists this week. If you like the show, we sure hope you did. Please subscribe and share it with the people in your community. And don't forget to leave us a five-star review that really helps other people find the show. 
And you can ping us anytime on Instagram and Twitter at, at Futurist Podcast for the folks that you'd like to see on the show or the questions that you'd like us to ask. Thanks for joining. And as always, we'll see you in the future.